All right, Romans chapter 9. I'm going to sit right here. Okay, no, okay. No, I'm not going to sit here. Okay, you're just going to listen to me. No, I'm going to sit. Romans chapter 9. I don't even know what we're going to do. No, Romans chapter 9. We've, we've done this so many different ways. I keep changing my mind every single time. Uh, but uh, now this is a situation. Now, for those, uh, those listening online, you may not understand this. Those here who've been going here for a long time, you know that what I attempt to do is not, and, and I know this sounds weird, I don't care about delivering a sermon. I'm, I know you're saying, but no, that's what you're supposed to do. No. I think sermons are nothing more than speeches. In other words, they, they, there's all these rules on what you're supposed to do in a sermon, right? You've got to make, make sure you have good eye contact. You open with a joke. You close with a sad story. Make sure you have three points. because And it's, it's got to be something that's compelling, something that will motivate people, something that will challenge, something that will be interesting. And you've got to do all of these things in order. I hate to say it. You have to almost do something in order to, to entertain to motivate you, you gotta you gotta preach a certain way because you're trying to get a certain kind of response, and you gotta keep everyone engaged, and you gotta keep everyone paying attention, and it's just all of these rules that you learn basically in public speaking class, right? Well, it, those are easy to do. I mean, if you if you don't have a problem speaking in front of people, you can you can find the little rules in order to be engaging. The only problem is sometimes. That becomes so important that what gets forgotten is actually studying the text. Because guess what? Some texts require maybe a different approach than making sure I just break it down into three little points and I can make it applicable and give you something to go home with. In fact, sometimes what I fear is that we're so worried about doing that that we actually maybe destroy the meaning of the text. I dealt with this a little bit this morning on Jude, right? I could approach Jude like, guys, you're being warned or you're going to be judged. That would preach good. That would get your attention. That hopefully would make you feel convicted. The only problem is that's not what Jude is talking about. Does that make sense? So therefore, I would sacrifice faithfulness to the text for the sake of a good sermon. And pastors love to preach in a way that says, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do because that usually gets the motive. Especially if you're in a church that does altar calls, you've got to make sure you say something that's going to convict someone because the success of your sermon is dependent on how many people walk the aisle and kneel down to pray. You've got to, you've got to, so if you've ever been in those kind of churches, when it gets to the altar call, they throw in everything. If you've committed a sin in the last 24 hours, walk the aisle. If you have blonde hair, why they, because you've got to get 10 people down there because you can go home going, man, we had a good altar call. I, I did a good job because I, I, I was trained in those kinds of churches. And I, I, that's, that's what I thought was success is I got to get how many people can I get to an altar, right? And then you realize that's, that can't be the way I, I base the success of my sermon. And it can't be based off you going, man, that was funny. That was entertaining. It can't be based off that. It has to be based off this. And sometimes this is not as glamorous. You leave here understanding the text better than when you arrived. Now, sometimes it, it appears that I didn't do my job. Okay. Sometimes. Sometimes, though, you don't even tell me if I did my job. But all I can do, that's the best I can do. So I feel that in Romans 9, but what we have to do is just kind of keep working through the chapter in, a, in, a, in a, the way that we started last week. So, so that you have a better grasp of the chapter because there's just so much here that doesn't make any sense. All right, so let's remind ourselves. Why is Romans 9, 10, and 11 so odd and weird? Because all of a sudden, in the middle of discussions about salvation, election, justification, sanctification, all of these major issues pertaining to the doctrine of salvation, he just all of a sudden, and just like drives off the road, through a fence, over a cliff. And you're, when you finally get to the bottom of the cliff, you're like, what are you doing down here? Oh, we're going to talk about Roman, or we're going to talk about Israel. And you're like, uh, how, wait, what happened? I thought, wait, well, how did we get here? Do you not know how to drive? Right? Are you confused? Well, no, he's not confused. Something about Israel is very significant to our understanding of salvation. So he spends how many chapters? I've already told you, three chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
All right. So we started working on 9, 10, and 11. We started making it. We, we, we were using a commentary. They, they were doing some interesting things, and it would have been fun to continue to work through that. But then I'm thinking, we're going we're gonna to lose focus here. So then I took a detour. I took, I, I went, he went right, I went left, right? I went through my own fence, and who knows where I am. But I decided we're just going to walk through the chapter trying to build an outline. All right? Does that make sense? Now, here's what we've established. Everybody ready? Now, here comes the dangerous part. Right? If nobody has any answers, that means last week was in vain. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 9, we broke the first section down covering verses 1 through 3, and we call this... Oh, I'm glad Twyla's here. Okay, okay. The great sorrow. Okay, all right. All right, whoever else answered. Okay, the great sorrow. Twyla's just louder. Okay, all right. The great sorrow. Right? The great sorrow. And what is the great sorrow spoken of in verses 1 through 3? Let's read it. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed for, from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. All right. What is the great sorrow here? His sorrow is for Israel. Now, just I want you to put your thinking caps on. Right? Everybody ready? This is worth a million dollars. Okay? What is the significant theological implication of Paul's sorrow? This is worth a million dollars. Final jeopardy. Double or nothing. Okay, Oh, look at that. That's brilliant. That not everyone in Israel is just automatically saved. They're not saved as individuals because of their association with Israel. That's brilliant. That's great. Why is this important? Because we we have to keep making a distinction here, right? We've spent a lot of time working on What did we spend the first two months doing in our study in Romans 9? We went through all the promises given to whom? Israel, the nation. Very good. So we have to draw a distinction between the nation and the individual Jew, right? The individual Hebrew, right? There is a distinction. Are there promises made to the nation? Yes. You could even argue there's a promise to the nation that at some future point, the nation itself will be redeemed and saved, right? But in the meantime, between the fulfillment of those promises, what is the reality every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, of the individual Jew or the individual Hebrew? What's the reality? That they are not saved unless they believe. Correct? And this is demonstrated because Paul it obviously knows they're not all saved because if they were all saved, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be in great sorrow, right? He'd be happy, happy, happy. He, he's acknowledging that they're going to be damned and so he wishes he could be accursed on their behalf. That is a very, 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 very important theological implication of that great sorrow. It's not just there for you to go, man, Paul's such a... How is it typically preached? You should have that same great sorrow. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an application to it, but that's the, the difference between, we got to preach a sermon, right? i got to preach a sermon. And what's a good way to get everyone convicted? Do you care that much about the lost? Well, no. Well, then... Come up here to the altar and, 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 and confess it because I can go home thinking I had a successful sermon. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an application there. Please don't hear me wrong. What I'm saying is we overlook maybe the theological implication here because it's weird that he went from chapter 8 to all of a sudden this. And it's really weird that it's about Israel, but it makes perfect sense. Hey, guess what? Everyone in Israel is not just automatically saved. Was this a problem with some of the people who Jesus had to deal with in the Gospels? Hey, we're children of Abraham. And he's like, yeah. 
I can raise children of Abraham from these rocks over here. And they're, they're thinking we're good because we're children. Not as an individual, you're not. The nation has promises. But as an individual, unless you have faith in Christ, you are what? Lost. Think of it. An unbelieving Jew and an unbelieving Gentile. If either one of them died today, they are going to stand judged in an eternity separated from God. You say, but, but there's promises to Israel. Those promises to the salvation of the nation have not occurred yet. Yes? So in the meantime, that's the reality. So we looked at the great sorrow. Next. The great blessing. What is the blessing given to Israel? We see it in verse 4 and 5. Everybody remember all of them? Let's go through them. Verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth thee? Number one, adoption. Number two, glory. Number three, covenants. Number four, the law. Number five, service of God. Number six, promises. Number seven, who are the fathers and whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Christ came from them. Now that is all true of what? <clears throat> the nation. All of that is true to the nation. Right? The, not every individual Jew has been adopted per se, right? Because remember, he's already just talked about how some are not saved. But the nation has been adopted. The nation has been given all these blessings. You see, it's kind of, it feels weird, does it not? That the nation can have all of these blessings, but the individual within the nation may not. Everybody got that? All right. That brought us to the next section. <clears throat> Starting at verse what? Six. And what did we, and, and please, does everyone agree that a new section begins in verse six? Why? Okay, well, okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, so, so, okay. Just please remember that the punctuation is not in the original. Just please remember, the original is more godly than the translation because the original didn't have punctuation, proving that punctuation is not a godly thing to study. All right, okay. All right, so yeah, okay. Tell that to your teacher and see if that works. Okay, okay. okay. Hey, do you know that there was no punctuation in the original? Okay, the original what? They won't even know what you're talking about. Okay. All right, so yeah, don't try that in school, but I mean, it would be kind of fun. All right, I would probably have tried it, but okay. I didn't know that at the time, okay. All right, but uh, what would be the main reason we would think that verse six starts a different section in our outline? Okay, it ends with an amen, okay? That, that's a possible clue. Next, well, what does he do in verse four and five? He lists promises, yes? What does he do in verse six? Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It, it seems to change dramatically. He's going in a different direction. Okay, so, verse, so verses 1 through 3 is the great sorrow. Verses 4 through 5 are the great blessings. And starting in verse 6, what do we want to call this? Well, let's start reading. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall they thy seed be called. That is, that which are they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word a promise at this time, will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. Now we believe clearly the, that section stops there. Why do we believe the section stops there? Because in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Now he's going to ask a, a possible question in relation to what he just talked about. So that would mean verse 6 to 13 is the next section. And what do we believe this section should be called? The, the great election? 
Okay, we have great choices. What else could we call it? We could call it, we're going to go with election. All right. And here's the reason we're going to go with election. Because the section ends with the emphasis. In fact, it it states it very dogmatically. Is it verse 11? That the, uh, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but him that calleth, right? So he, because he's, what, he, what does he do starting in verse 6 to 13? What does he attempt to do in verses 6 through 13? He names individuals, right? All right, so uh, what I want you to do is he names individuals, but he, he draws a distinction between individuals, right? So in your outline, you have 6 through 13, the great election, right? Then you can draw a line right down the middle of the page. On, and he's going to give a name here and a name here, right? So what are the first two names? Abraham and Isaac, right? Okay, does he draw a distinction between Abraham and Isaac? What's the distinction? Is it between Abraham and Isaac or is the distinction between Isaac and Between the children of Abraham, right? Okay. All right. So who are the two children of Abraham? Is Isaac and Ishmael. Is it, Ishmael's not named, is he? But is he uh, referred to? How is he referred to? Okay. Uh, yes. So, so you're drawing a distinction here. Okay. Let, let's. Let, I'm going to just read it this way. All right. We'll work through it together. Verse six. So he, he talks about that the word of God hath not taken effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel. So, if you want to think of it this way, he draws a distinction between Israel and Israel. That's the first distinction. Yes. Which is the one that causes all the problems, right? Israel and Israel. Israel and Israel. Okay. Well, that's that's weird, right? Not all Israel are Israel, okay? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. So not because, again, what is he saying? Just because everyone is the seed of Abraham doesn't mean that they're actually children, right? Remember the distinction that we've tried to make? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God, but the children of the promise counted for the seed. For at the, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So he talks about the children of Abraham and the children of Isaac, he doesn't get too specific, does he? But there's some kind of a, there's an implication here, yes? So if you think about it, not all Israel is Israel. Okay? And he draws a distinction between the children of the flesh versus the children of promise. Does everybody see that? Okay, so far so good. Now, so we have not all Israel Israel, we have a distinction between flesh and and a promise, okay? And then the, what's kind of implied here, I know, I wish it was more specific. I wish it was just very blunt. But the implication is, Isaac is the, which child? Of the promise, right? And therefore, Ishmael, who's not named, but he's kind of referenced, would be a, ch- a child of the flesh. Correct? Then Isaac is spoken of, and then his children are referred to, Right? Does Isaac's children get named? Yeah, Jacob and Esau, they get named, right? So Jacob would be the child of? Jacob would be the child of what? Promise, and Esau would be the child of the flesh. He's drawing a distinction. He's going after the individuals to show what distinction. Not all Israel's Israel. Right? Not all the seed of Abraham are children of the promise. Some of them are children of the flesh. He's drawing a distinction here. Correct? Now, by drawing this distinction, 
it can lead to a little bit of confusion, but it doesn't lead to confusion because he's already clearly established that not all people in Israel are saved, right? Because he's, he's, that's why he has great sorrow for them. So he, we have these distinctions, right? Israel, Israel, pro, see, children of the promise versus children of the flesh. In a sense, you have Isaac and Ishmael, and then you have Jacob and Esau. Agreed? Right, if you want to write it out that way, you could. Just, I want you to see the distinction. Now, when you see this distinction, what's the first thing that could come to your mind? He kind of alludes to it at the beginning of this section. When you see this distinction, you could start having a problem. Now, he alludes to the problem in verse 6. That you could argue, well, the word of God is taken of no effect because there's been promises given to Israel. And you're like, well, wait a minute, how could then individuals not be saved? Okay, but it's not that it's failed. God's word has not failed, but you could think that it's failed, right? Why would you think that it's failed? Did you see all of those promises we read about Israel? It sounds like the whole nation's going to be restored. The whole nation's going to be saved. And you'd be looking at this going, hey, did you not read your Bible? Did you not read your Bible? Abraham had two sons. Isaac is the saved one and Ishmael was the lost one. Well, then how does that work? Well, wait a minute. Didn't Isaac have kids? Jacob was the so quote-unquote saved one. Esau was the lost one. Well, then wait a minute. How does this work with all the promises given to Israel? Not all Israel are Israel. But he's saying God's word has not taken no effect. Don't, don't get worried about it. It seems like I would get worried about it, right? So what is his solution to this perceived problem? In this section, what is the solution to the perceived problem? What did we call this section? So what's the solution to this problem? Election. Election. Now this, does it, this, make, this should make everyone a little uncomfortable. I don't like this. You know why I don't like this? Because it's one thing to say God elected Israel and that one's, at some point in the future he's going to save them. That's, that's something for the future, right? But in the meantime, some are saved and some are not saved. And you're like, well, wait a minute, why? And what's the answer? Election. I don't like that. I don't like that. You, you, well, you will bring it from the Bible to right here in this building. All right? Emma's sitting here. Lydia's sitting here. Right? Now, if we all know, right? We all know this because Lydia married Seth, so we know she clearly isn't the saved one. <laughs> right? Because no saved person would do such a thing. Right? Agreed? Okay. Agreed? Now, come on, I need an amen here, okay? Everybody says, well, obviously, okay? Like, there, there's never been anything more true than that, okay? Right? Agreed? Okay. So she's the child of the flesh. And Emma, she didn't marry someone like that. Right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, that... We can't go to what happens in the future. We can just go with the present situation. So she's the child of promise. Now, I could look at this and go, worthless parents. Man, those parents are trash. If they would raise their kids in the right way, man, Lydia wouldn't have turned out so messed up. Don't you agree? I don't know what they're doing. Their, parent, their parental style is garbage. Because look, you, you, yeah, work with me here, okay? okay. We're, we're talking, I don't need you to confess your sins, okay? We're, we don't do that. We don't confess our sins. We're not, we're, we're not Catholic. We're Baptist, okay? We, 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 we talk about everyone else's sins. That's what Baptists do, okay? Right? Catholics confess their sins. Baptists talk about everyone else. Okay, so Sarah and Stephen, I mean, we all knew they were trash, right? I mean, let me see Lydia, I mean. Yeah, no surprise, right? Okay, I don't know how Emma and Dad, uh, she was probably adopted or something, okay? Right, so, but that's, that, that's the question, right? Yeah. So what's the difference between them? We always look for some human answer, right? 
We do that. This text doesn't seem to state that the issue was Abraham and Sarah messed up. But no, because Abram ended up with an Ishmael and an Isaac. Isaac ended up with a Jacob and an Esau. And the issue, according to the text, wasn't their parental style. It was because of what could stand? Election. Not of works, but the one that called. Now, in some ways, that can make you go, whew. Now, I don't have to take any responsibility for how my kids turned out. I mean, you know, I'm I'm glad for that. Okay? On the other hand, I don't like that. It's a catch-22, right? Nobody likes this. Nobody likes it. Now, some people say, well, this, some people who don't like the doctrine of election will do everything. No, 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 no. This is not about election of individuals. This is about the, the, the election of nations. But he's talking individuals here, right? He's talking individuals. We, we are not denying that there isn't a promise to the nation, right? But the, the, the promise to the nation Paul's already started off. He's upset about the individual Jew, right? Yes, that's the great sorrow. Now the great election is that within Israel, there's some that are saved and there's some that are not saved. And guess what? Within the Gentiles, there are some that are saved and some that are not saved. I don't care the race. I don't care the gender. I don't care the state, the country. I don't care any of that within any group. Guess what you have? Those who are saved, those who are not saved. And guess what is the distinction? God's election. That's the point. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of it. I'm just going to be honest with you. Look, I, on one hand... I mean, I've, I've had to go through everything when it comes to the doctrine of election, okay? I've, I mean, I got kicked out of my first Bible institute because of the doctrine of election. I've had to deal with all kinds of controversies surrounding it because it's just a subject you're not supposed to study, especially within the American evangelical world because Americans have a very, sadly, our American ideals greatly impact the way we read the Bible. And you can't read the Bible through the lens of an American. You have to read the Bible through, well, no lens. You're supposed to just let the text determine, right? Americans don't like that idea of election. What, we, what idea do we like? No, come on. Freedom, right? Isn't that the whole thing about America? Freedom, 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 freedom. I mean, we love that concept, Yes. That's kind of built into our DNA. There's, you can talk about how good, bad. From a theological perspective, though, the Bible doesn't quite care that much about your ideals of freedom, right? The Bible didn't really worry about, well, there's going to come a country, Americans, and they really care about freedom. God doesn't really seem too interested in that, yes? He's constantly telling us to submit, and not our will, but his will, and deny yourself, die to self, submit to this authority, like, the Bible, you're like, the Bible seems not to even care about your freedom. Then you're like, what kind of nonsense is this? What non-American wrote this? Right? Well, yeah, that's, it wasn't non-American exactly, right? But you get the idea. So that section here, verses 6 through 13, in fact, one commentary, they state it this way, divine election and rejection. You don't have to put the rejection there, but you definitely have the divine election. So let's go through it again one more time. Verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel. Within Israel, there are some who, in a sense, are not Israel. In other words, there are some in Israel, the nation of Israel, who are not the children. Think of it this way. There are some in Israel who are not children of the promise, but children of the flesh. That's the big distinction here, correct? And then he starts breaking it down. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Just because you're of the seed of Abraham does not guarantee what? Salvation or that you are a child of the promise. You may be a child of the flesh. Isn't that true in your home? 
right? We just used Emma and Lydia for the illustration, right? All from the same family, one saved, the other one not. Now, those listening online, I'm not saying Lydia is not really saved. I'll get some like, man, how dare you call out the unsaved person in your church? I'm not doing that. But, okay, just an example, okay? All right, everybody, everybody understand that? Okay, someone's online is going to get offended. Like, I'm going to defend Lydia. Okay, just it's okay. Calm down, calm down. We're, we're, all, we're all good here, okay? But you see, they would, come, they would be of, from the same family, but one would be of the child, uh, be the child of promise, the other one would be the child of the flesh. Does that make sense? See that distinction happening here? Verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children, um, uh, the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. You see the distinction between the child of the flesh and the child, the child of God or the child of promise? Next verse. For this is the word of promise at the time will I come to Sarah and it shall and. Sarah shall have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, here we go, neither having done any good or evil. So there's some very significant things here. What The, the distinction here is made when? Before birth, before they do anything. Okay, the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but him that calleth. It can't be based on what they're going to do, because then it would be based off works. So it can't be based off, well, God saw that, you know, Emma was going to do one thing, and Lydia was going to do another. Then it would be based off how good uh, Emma is, and Emma is probably not any better than Lydia. Shocking. Right? Okay, well, she may think she is. She's like, oh, you don't know. Okay, after church, I'll show you how much better that I am. Okay, all right. Okay, no, no, I don't want to know. Okay, let's just la, 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 la. I don't want to know. God knows. And guess what? God knows that if I base it off works, what's going to happen to Lydia and Emma? They're both going to end up in hell. All right? So the distinction then is that what? Election. It was said unto the younger, or it was said unto, unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Man, like I said, there, there's parts of that I like, there's parts of that I hate. I'm just going to be honest with you. Same with you. I, I wish it was different. I wish it was different, but it's not. You, you have very, I, I know this is going <clears> to <throat> go against a lot, what a lot of people want to believe, but your, your ability, not only for your own children, your ability to get people saved, you, you have no ability, right? You know, and I have to stress this, your ability to get someone saved, whether it's someone living in your home or whether someone's not, is the same ability you currently have to get in your car, go right down this road, look to the right. As you get about a mile down the road, you're going to see a graveyard to walk into that graveyard and raise any of those people from the dead. And you know what? You're not going to raise any of them. You can ground them, yell at them, scream at them. You can, you can threaten them. You can do everything. You can tell them to behave. You can tell them to pay attention. And not one person's getting out of that grave today. I'll come back driving by back to church this evening. You'll still be out there yelling and screaming. And it's like, it didn't work. So why don't you just go home? Now, that doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities. Obviously, as parents, we have to try to do our best to, to, to raise our kids to the best of our ability. But guess what you cannot do? Cannot save them. I wish you could. But you can't. Now, you can manipulate them, right? You can, you can put them in an environment where they feel like they have to go along with your Christianity in order to make uh, their, their childhood halfway worthwhile. But once it's over, 
they're just going to reject it. You, so you, it's better to give them, the, as, you know, give them the ability to be honest and open and, and not just threaten and threaten because the threatening doesn't work. It just makes them bitter and hateful and then destroy your relationship. And then that's nothing, nothing good comes from that. You want to have the relationship because as long as you have a good relationship and they trust you and love you and can share with you, then they can tell you whatever they feel and without any fear of like they're going to get you know, in trouble, then there's, you have that good relationship which may give you the ability to show them love, peace, and mercy, and the things of God that God may be able to use in order to bring them to salvation. Because God does use our efforts to bring people to salvation. But there's very little you can do to make it happen. And I know it's hard. You want that control, but you can't. You can't, you can't change the heart. Now, again, this, this looks like from the outside that God's word is failing, does it not? Why does it look like God's word is failing? You're like, well, if you chose the nation, why don't you save everyone in the nation? Well, that promise for the nation comes later, not in the meantime. Does that make sense? Now, that brings us to the next section that we haven't established yet. So what's, what, what sections do we have so far? Great sorrow, great blessing, great election. What do we have starting in verse 14? Well, let's do this. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to do this. Figure out when that section that begins in 14, tell me where you think it ends. I'll just let you skim. I know this is not the way it's typically supposed to work. I'm supposed to just read it to you, but I hate doing that. Okay, Stephen went straight, boom! He went right to verse 30, and he did so because what did he see in verse 30? Another question, seemingly to imply that 15 to 29 is all there to answer what? The question presented in 14. Agreed? And in 30, so let's say we go with 14 to 29. We're going to say that Stephen is right. Okay? Okay? We're going to say that he's right, but I, I, I reserve the right to say that he's wrong later. Okay? Okay, do I? Okay, don't get, don't get all technical. Okay, we're going to pretend that he's right. Okay, right? We're going to say that he's right. He may be right. He may be wrong. But let, so let's say that this is true. 14 to 29 is a section. What would we call this section? That's true. I just assume all of you've read it, but okay. All right. Let, let's, let, let's start reading and see if anything jumps out at you, okay? All right. I, I have something here in, the, uh, in my notes. See, uh, sometimes I think y'all think, he doesn't even know what, I, I, I have notes. I just, I, just, I just usually try to get you guys to figure it out where I can go, you're wrong! Okay, no, but I, I try to get you to figure out for a reason, right? I don't want you sitting here listening. I want you studying. Okay, here we go. Everybody ready? Let's start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So clearly we know that this is going to perceive, or this is going to, it's going to proceed in an attempt to answer the charge that God can be unrighteous. Why would someone say God is unrighteous? Why, why does Paul anticipate someone going, whoa, 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 whoa? Your God is definitely messed up. Your God is so messed up. Why does he perceive someone's getting ready to jump in right then? (laughs) He just said that the reason some people are the child of promise is because God chose them to be. And the reason some people are the children of the flesh is because God didn't choose them. That's going to cause someone to go, this is messed up, which tells us that the right way to interpret the preceding verses is clearly about God choosing and electing because if it wasn't, a, because everyone wants to explain it away. If you explain it away, then why would someone go, wait, 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 wait. God is messed up. Nobody would be saying God is messed up the way everyone explains it away. You can't explain it away for this objection to make any sense. Now, how, what does he attempt to do starting in verse 15? For he, say, for he saith to Moses, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So then it is not of him that willeth. Uh Uh-oh, that just ticked off a whole lot of people. It's not of him that willeth. Everybody see that? Now immediately people are like, no, 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 no. It's based off our will. That that just says it's not... I don't know how much more clear something can be, but okay. All right. So it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That is one absolutely messed up verse. Hey, you know Pharaoh? I raised him up. I put him in a position of power. For what purpose? For God's name. For God's purpose. Pharaoh was simply serving the purpose of someone else. Happens to be God. Verse 18. Therefore hath he, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, on whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou will say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Someone st- now, I will argue that this question is continuing the, the line of questioning began in verse 14. But it is very good that you pointed out there's another question here. I believe it con- continues. So, because of time, we'll stop right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forth an idea. Do you think that what is trying to be established here is that God is just and God is righteous? So if we go with the, our, the way we've worked this, could we say verses 1 through 3 is the great sorrow. Verses 4 through 5 is the great blessing or blessings. Verse 6 through 13 is the great election. And verses 14 through 29, going with Stephen's outline, the great justice of God. That God is, proven, is going to be proven to be just even in his election, which doesn't appear to be just to us. Why is it just? Now, I'm not asking you to answer it from Romans right now. Just, I'm going to ask you to answer it just using the whole Bible. Why is God just in him choosing some and not choosing others? Okay, well, true, God is just and holy no matter what he does, right? So that's just because of who he is. That's a good way of answering it. But think about it this way. God is just and holy in choosing some and not choosing others because no one deserves to be chosen. We all deserve what? Wrath. If we all deserve God's wrath, then saving any is an act of mercy, Judging everyone else is an act of justice. That I don't like it. Oh, make, make sure we understand this. This is not a doctrine that is based off your likes. Because I don't like it. All right? Does everybody understand that? I don't like it. So I, I, I'm with you here. Okay? So, because there may be some of you, I'm having a hard time. I have a hard time with it. But I can't get around with what's said. Paul seems to know that people are going to have a hard time with it, right? Because he immediately says, someone's going to say, God's unrighteous. Well, I know why. And guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, oh, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood. No, 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 no. God is not choosing individuals. No, you misunderstood. That's not what I meant. He doesn't say that. He doubles down. He goes, God's going to have mercy and he's going to judge who he's going to judge. He doesn't say, no, 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 you, it's so weird how you hear preachers like, no, 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 no. Uh, Those Calvinists say something else. Forget, I hate that whole word Calvinist. It drives me crazy. Okay, forget the term Calvinist. It's what Paul said. Paul's name is not Calvin. Does everybody understand that? When was Romans written? Let's just do this really quick. Everyone grab a dictionary just quick and tell me when the book of Romans was written. Just really quick. We'll end with this. The quicker you do this, the faster you go home. All right? Make make sure someone has a phone or a tablet because you're going to have to look up something on the internet here in a second, okay? 
All right, we'll just say somewhere between 55 and 60 A.D., Paul wrote Romans. Someone look up on the Internet when John Calvin was born. Tell me when he was born. See if you can find the month and the day. July 10th, 15, his birthday will be coming up, right? July the 10th, 1509, correct? All right, July 10th, 1509. I don't know if you know this, 1509 comes much later than 55 or 60 AD. Right? In fact, I'm not good at math, but that's about how long? Okay, 1,500 years, okay, around about, all right. 1,500 years is a long time. Calvin didn't all of a sudden just wake up one day and go, you know what, I really hate people. I really hate people. People are garbage. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a doctrine that says God chose some of the people and not all the people. In fact, if you really hated people, you would want God chose no one but me. But okay, but that, he didn't quite come up with that idea. But that's not how it worked. Is it a possibility that he came to his idea, not, well, not even based off Paul, but I mean, people earlier were making similar comments, but you get the idea. Is it possible that he just read, I don't know, Romans 9 is like, huh, that's interesting. Not everyone of Israel is Israel, and he makes a distinction between the children of the promise versus the children of the flesh, and it seems that the distinction between the two had nothing to do with what they did, but God's electing, because the text actually says those exact words. And then Paul realizes that I'm getting ready to say, that's messed up. God's not right to do such a horrible thing. And guess what Paul went on to say? He's God and he will have mercy in whom he will have mercy. He will judge in whom he will judge. And it's not based on those who will. Based on what God does. Now, I don't, I'm not saying you run, look, this, this is very important. This is not a doctrine you run up to a stranger on the street and say, are you one of the elect? Okay, it's not that. Remember, from an earthly perspective, because I'm going to have people listening online right now who are very, very, very upset right now. Maybe Make sure we understand this. From a practical perspective, this is how it works. Anyone who believes is saved. Everybody got that? Right? Those who truly believe in Christ are saved. Agreed? Those who don't are lost. That is salvation from what perspective? My perspective, right? If I go to Emma and present the gospel and she believes, salvation. If Lydia rejects, no salvation. And guess what? I don't know who the elect, I don't know who not the elect. I just know that I have to present the gospel to both. Right? Nothing changes. For some weird reason, people think election changes anything. No, I present the gospel to both. One believes you're saved. The other one doesn't believe you're not saved, right? I don't know who's elect. I don't know who's not elect. Who knows that? God. The election is, so that's the earthly perspective. I see people. I preach. If you believe, then you believe. If you don't believe, you're not a believer. That makes sense, right? Now, that's earth. Now, if I, get in a, if I get taken up to heaven, when I look into heaven, what do I see? I see a heavenly perspective. And what do I see? God, before the foundations of the world, chose those who would be saved, and he will save them. That's a heavenly. Everyone gets so upset about it, and I don't know why you get upset. That's the heavenly perspective. Earthly perspective, preach the gospel. You say, are you saying I shouldn't preach? No, you preach to everyone. Well, who's gonna, guess what? Whether you believe in election or you, whether you believe in man's free will, guess what you end up with? Is everyone going to believe? Wow, shocker. Who's going to be saved? Those who believe. Who's going to be damned? Guess what? Nothing changes. The difference is, I, if you believe in free will, Emma... Ch- chose to believe because I don't know why, either because she listens to my great preaching and realized how smart I was, or she's just smarter than Lydia, okay? So then somehow Lydia or Emma gets the credit from the, from the uh, quote-unquote Calvinistic perspective. You don't get any credit. Okay. And we don't know anyway, but I'm saying from this perspective, Emma doesn't get any credit. I don't know why God chose her. It's that simple. 
And then you have to go, why? I don't know why. You better just be grateful that it has happened and be probably humbled and broken by it. And, and gratitude should just flow out of you like, so you should have so much gratitude every day. You should just be like, Lord, whatever you want me to do, because I can't believe you would choose such an unworthy person. Because I'm an unworthy person. I don't know about you, but I'm as unworthy as unworthy as unworthy can be. And if you look at those people, I mean, come on. Jacob and Esau? And Abraham is chosen? Abram does some really messed up stuff. Some really. We, we, Twyla was a part of the, the study that we've done on uh, parts of Genesis dealing with sexual violence in the Bible. That's some messed up stuff that happens with Hagar. I mean, that's a twisted story. Okay? And in Ishmael, they just get booted. I mean, they don't even treat, they use them and then discard them. It's completely evil. But Abram's declared to be righteous. When you get to the New Testament, David is declared to be righteous. David? He murdered someone. Okay? Possibly even worse than that, depending on how we read the story. Yeah, but he's declared to be righteous. Look at many of the people in Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith. You look at them and you're like, these guys were losers. Okay? Yeah, we won't even go into Solomon. I mean, for crying out loud. I mean, if Solomon, was, if Solomon walked into a modern day church, they'd be like, you need to see the exit, sir. And he'd be like, uh, why do I need to see the exit? You use my writings to teach your kids wisdom. Yeah, but you can't be a member of the church because you got 9,000 women with you and half of them are not even your wife. Okay, I'm sorry, you got to go. But, but we're like, Solomon, proverb a day keeps the devil away. Now, proverb, not because he was godly, because God chose him. Peter, I mean, Peter was a mess. Right? Judas betrays, Peter denies. One obviously is chosen, the other one is not. They both don't deserve anything. And I don't know about your story, but I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to be behind this pulpit. I don't deserve to hold up a Bible. I don't deserve to even be in a church. I don't deserve anything. but I'm declared righteous, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ did. That doesn't excuse anything I've ever done. Doesn't excuse it. It's wrong. No no one's fault but my own and any sin I've ever committed. I can't blame anyone else. But it's just, that's the way it works. And we have to, every day, just like, why me? There's God's mercy. And just pray that God would have mercy on everyone you know around you. Right? Right? And don't ever think that God hasn't shown mercy to them because you don't know when and where it could happen, right? Just pray and beg that God would have mercy and that, that, that he would save them. And our job is just to love people, show mercy to them, and present the gospel to them in the most loving way possible. And just let whatever happens, happens, but it's, not, it's out of our control. All right, we'll have to stop right there. Let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this afternoon. This is some very, 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 very important information and very very at times disturbing, but at the same time, for everyone in this room who is saved and anyone listening online, I hope that they will just be overwhelmed with gratitude that for some reason, in your divine mercy, you chose them. I don't know why. I don't know why you chose me, but all we can do is say thank you and show our gratitude in how we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,